This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Welcome to Mobile Suit Breakdown. This is episode 1.13, Mothers Are Complex, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and such a disgraceful child. And I'm Nina, anime fan and, like many old school fairy tales, pretty morbid. Before we get started with this episode, we have an update on something we talked about several episodes back. One of our listeners, Ryan F., pointed out that the music in the English dub is different from the music in the Japanese original. And at the time, we supposed a couple of different ideas for why that might be. Since then, we kept researching it, and I was able to track down a transcript of an interview that Tomino gave in 2002 at Anime Expo New York. This was a remarkably candid interview, and it was only a couple of years after the English dub was made. I've said before the English dub was made a shockingly long time after Gundam was originally created, and the English dub for First Gundam was not created until 2000. Some fans asked Tomino about why there had not been an American release of the Japanese language version of First Gundam, and he told them the quality of the soundtrack masters for the Japanese version had degraded too badly for them to be released. And at the time, there had just been a release of a special edition of the Gundam compilation movies, for which Sunrise had actually re-recorded the soundtrack. Wow, okay. Yeah, so that's probably what happened. The soundtrack was in such bad condition when the English dub was made that the dubbing team was not able to use the original soundtrack. Some famous songs or any songs that appeared in the movie would have been recently re-recorded or would have been available in better copies. But minor music, stuff that only comes up once or twice in the show, like the pianos of tension, (laughs) just wouldn't have been available. And it wouldn't have been worth investing the time and money in re-recording those songs. For the Blu-ray release, which is how we're watching it, did they do a remaster of the audio? That I don't know. If I had to guess, I'd say that technology has improved substantially since 2000, and perhaps there were techniques available to restore the damaged audio, or perhaps they found copies of the masters. (laughs) Fair. So we'll need to do some further digging into that and see if we can find an answer. This week, we researched Pinocchio, military quartering, and judo. But before we get into that, the Japanese name for this week's episode is Saikai Hahayo, which means something along the lines of, we meet again, mother. Sort of gives the episode away, doesn't it? But we've been expecting this reunion for some time now. Before we get into our responses to the episode, it will be helpful to go over the role Amaro's mother has played in the story so far. In the early episodes of Gundam, Amuro's mother is mostly conspicuous by her absence. We meet his father, Temray, within minutes of the opening credits, but we also know that Amuro lives alone, mothering Amuro, doing things like bringing him food, telling him to get dressed, making sure he heard the evacuation siren. All of that has fallen on Fraubo, his friend. And throughout the show, pretty much every episode reminds us how completely 
Frau has taken over the maternal role for Amaro. And given all of the broken families that we've encountered so far, and the absolute total scale of the devastation as described in the opening narration, we would be well justified to assume that Amaro's mother was just dead somewhere. Until he mentions, in episode 5, that she should still be alive on Earth somewhere. Then, in episode 8, when Amuro watches a young widow with her toddler son, he wonders, sadly, whether this is what mothers are like. And later, when he thinks that that mother and child are in danger, he puts his whole mission and the safety of the entire white base at risk in order to protect them. And that's not even taking into account the prominence that mothers and maternal absence has played in the show outside of Amaro specifically. In episode one, it is the on-screen death of Frau Bo's mother, mere meters from Amaro and Frau, and while they're watching, that provides the catalyst for Amaro to get into the Gundam in the first place. From episode two onward, Frau Bo, already Amaro's mother, also acts as a surrogate mother for the three orphans, Kika, Katz, and Letts. In episode 5, we briefly meet a little boy, and we learn that he's been fixated on his RC car ever since his parents died in the war. And most recently, episode 10 gave us an odd but poignant scene in which Fraubo and the three young orphans briefly care from a baby separated from its, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, neglectful mother. And those are just the major ones. By my count, fully half of the 12 episodes so far have included motherhood in some clear way. And that number gets higher if you think, like we do, that Amuro is seeking maternal support and guidance from Sela as well. I don't think she's necessarily neglectful. She turned, like, what she says is basically, I turned around for a moment and my baby was gone. It's, it's true. Like, how, not, do you, how do you get separated from a baby? That is not a mobile baby. <laughs> I mean, did the orphans grab the baby and run? That's the question. No one gave those orphans a baby. They take what babies they want. <laughs> the orphans were like, uh-oh, we better get to shelter. Quick, grab the baby and run. <laughs> or the orphans were trying to expand their gang. <laughs> Gotta get them while they're young. Yeah, I think it's much more likely the orphans just took the baby while the mom had her back turned. She's probably across the room or something. <laughs> what? Why did she turn her back on that baby when all those orphans are around? <laughs> she should have known better. Never trust the orphans. They've stolen persimmons and babies, champagne. Next up, the Gundam. <laughs> Here's a question before we go into the recap. Excluding Amaro, does any major character in First Gundam so far on either side have a mother who is definitely alive? With that in mind, you're ready for the recap. Ah, the beach. Sun, sand, ocean waves lapping at your toes, and the crew of the White Base taking a much-needed break. While Hayato shows Ryu a few judo throws, and Sela and Mirai soak up the sun, Kai wonders where Amuro has gotten off to. When he learns that Amuro has taken a core fighter to go visit his nearby hometown, Kai grumbles about how everyone with a home on Earth is an elite. Elsewhere, in Amuro's hometown, it is blasted by war but still standing and still occupied. His childhood home survived too, but it has been occupied by a squad of drunken Federation soldiers, and his mother is nowhere to be found. He leaves, remembering as he does the day that he and his father left this house for the last time, and how his mother watched them depart, unable to reconcile herself to a life in space, even if that were the only way she could see her son. Outside, he encounters two more Federation soldiers, harassing an apple cart vendor, a woman around his mother's age. Amuro hasn't passed up a fight since he first left Side 7, and he's not about to now. He tackles one of them, and sets to pummeling the man, 
until the second soldier kicks him off. He's only saved from a worse beating by the apple seller, who pays the man with food to leave Amuro alone. They start talking as Amuro nurses his wounded pride, and he learns that the woman was the mother of his childhood friend, Komali. Komali is dead now, she tells Amuro, and so is the woman's husband. But Amuro's mother has survived, and she's gone to a nearby refugee camp to help out. Meanwhile, at the White Base, a Lagoon patrol passes too close for comfort, and Bright orders Ryu to intercept. He manages to shoot one plane down, but the second escapes, damaged, but headed back to a nearby Xeon base. At the refugee camp, Amuro is reunited with his mother, but at first sight, they both freeze. Neither knows quite what to say or what to do. At last, they embrace and begin to speak of their time apart, and Amuro's mother worries about the unknown fate of Tem Ray. Their reunion is interrupted. Xeon soldiers have come to investigate reports that a Federation fighter, Amuro's, landed nearby. Amuro hides under a blanket among the wounded and sick in the camp's medical tent, but his transponder chirps with a warning from the white base about the Xeon air patrol. The soldiers drag Amuro's mother away from him, and they're about to pull the blanket off, revealing his Federation uniform, when we hear a bang and see a smoking hole in the blanket. Amuro has shot one of the soldiers with his pistol. The other runs for his jeep as Amuro leaps out of bed, pursuing him to the door and emptying his pistol at the fleeing enemy. Now Amuro and his mother argue. She calls him cruel and disgraceful, moaning that she did not raise him to be so violent. She cries out that war is no excuse for pointing guns at people. As he leaves for the core fighter, his mother screams that she is ashamed to call him her son. He meets with Kai in the gun parry, and they test the Gundam's ability to combine with the core fighter in midair. Now complete once more, Amuro lays waste to the Xeon base. Watching from the ship, Bright shakes his head. Disappointed at Amuro's bad judgment, wasting valuable resources attacking a base with no strategic importance. But he will deal with that in private. When the white base prepares to depart, Bright meets with Amuro's mother to tell her how important Amuro is to the crew, and how many times he has saved all of their lives. That can't be true, she says. Then, is this really what you want? She asks Amuro before the ship flies off into the sunset. It's not about what I want, Amuro tells her. We get such a nice opening to this episode. We get to see everyone finally getting a break. They're at the beach. The orphans are swimming. We Mirai find out that when they evacuated from side seven, Mirai and Sela brought their swimsuits. And for some reason, either Ryu owns a judo gi in his size or Hayato happened to have a judo gi that was like eight sizes too large for him because Ryu and Hayato are practicing judo on the beach and we get to see Hayato throwing Ryu. I just want to point out, I've done judo, I've worn those gi, they are not comfortable garments, especially not in the sun, and not once you get sand in them. Obviously, Hayato's got that low center of gravity. Oh, yeah. It's actually an advantage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hayato has a great body type for judo. <laughs> and it's a good throw. I mean, I would expect them to use real judo and real throws in a show like this from this vintage. But yeah, it's a, it's a solid Ippon Seonage. And we, of course, get some more complaints from Kai. There's a whole discussion between him and Sela and Mirai about what constitutes an elite, right? And to Kai, it's anyone who has lived on Earth or has a home on Earth or anything like that. Anyone with those solid connections to Earth. And he mentions feeling sort of betrayed. I get a sense he was developing a sense of camaraderie with Amuro, and now he finds out Amuro is this fancy pants person with a home on Earth and... <laughs> Who have I befriended? I wonder if Kai realizes, for instance, that Mirai comes from a very famous family. Probably not. He doesn't realize he's speaking to an elite right in that moment. 
And I wondered if this was also meant to draw some parallels between Earth and Japanese cities at the time of World War II, because they mention that these quote-unquote elite areas have all been subject to a lot of aerial bombardment. During World War II, they would have considered big cities elite and the countryside more impoverished, more uneducated, but it was the cities that were destroyed. Another point in favor of that read, when Amuro arrives in his hometown, there are people packing to leave, which is what many people did if they could find a way. They left the cities and tried to move out to the countryside or to anywhere that felt safe. I wonder if it's not bigger than that. And the parallel here is the home islands versus Manchukuo and Okinawa, the Philippines, and all of these Japanese colonies that were really bearing the brunt of the war in the Pacific in the early days. But then once the bombardments and the bombings of the home islands began, those very economically and socially privileged areas were then destroyed. Yeah, Amuro's hometown is a mess, though it's not really his hometown. I mean, he, he lived there until he was five or something and the rest of his life in space. But it's his furusato. Bright uses the word. For anyone who doesn't remember the significance of furusato, you should go back and watch our previous episodes. I believe that's episode 1.8 when we discuss furusato. But really, you should watch all of our previous episodes. <laughs> we keep saying watch. Really, you should listen to all of our previous episodes. Womp womp. So speaking of Amaro's hometown, we see that it's been occupied, including his now abandoned childhood home, by Federation soldiers. And their status is sort of unclear. When Amaro meets with the mother of his childhood friend, she describes them as having been left behind and not having any contact with headquarters. And given what some of the Xeon soldiers say also in this episode when discussing the Federation forces in the area, it sounds like the Federation retreated and these soldiers were left behind or stayed behind. I'd be interested to know if they count as deserters under military law or if they fit into some other category. It's sort of unclear by the way she talks about it. They could also have been sent to the village on some mission, but have either no clue where to go or who to contact for further orders or were told to await further orders and none have come, or they could sort of be at loose ends for various reasons that aren't them deserting. True. <laughs> but there's definitely something there in terms of their interactions with civilians, the debauchery, stealing food from civilian vendors, humiliating civilians, the people they are ostensibly supposed to be protecting. The show feels the need to constantly remind us that there aren't really any true good guys. <laughs> Your own guys can also be the baddies. The history of of armies quartering their soldiers in ostensibly friendly territory, of commandeering goods and equipment, of looting, and so on, is as long as we've had armies, probably. <laughs> but also, this just popped into my head, creates a very interesting parallel, potentially, between them and Amuro. Amuro is disgusted with their behavior. He picks a fight with a soldier, he's briefly winning, and then he starts getting his butt kicked until the neighbor woman calls them off and offers to give them food for free and then they leave him alone. He's clearly not okay with what they're doing, but they feel a sense of entitlement because they've put their lives on the line. They feel like the civilians have gotten to be here peacefully because of what they're doing. There is perhaps some resentment. And we see Amuro having deep conflict with his mother over the fact that she does not understand what he has had to do, theoretically for all of their sakes, as a soldier. So I had a slightly different read on Amuro's 
feeling there because what he keeps saying is, do you want me to die? Don't you love me? And the feeling there is, I'm doing this to stay alive. I shot that Xeon soldier because if I hadn't, they would have killed me. Right. And you want me to not shoot him. Do you want me to die? Don't you, like, don't you love me? Don't you want me to survive? Don't you want to protect me? For Amaro, the fact that he might be theoretically protecting his mother and all the refugees and all the people on Earth is less important in this situation than like, you're my mother. You're supposed to protect me. You aren't. I'm protecting myself. And you're mad at me for doing that. I still feel like there is some interrelation between those feelings, but I see what you're saying. The other parallel for those soldiers in this episode is the Xeon soldiers when they go to inspect the refugee camp. And they're much more professional. They're much more disciplined. But their interactions with the civilians are, while more cordial and polite, just as hostile. They're there with guns. They are threatening everyone in the camp. They're taunting children. (laughs) They try to bribe the child with chocolate, and he kicks one of them in the shin and bolts away. To the Xeon soldier's credit, unlike that Federation soldier back in episode four, this guy does not point a gun at the kid who kicks him, but even so. They do feel more professional and disciplined, but it's clear they're not liked. Mm -hmm. It's two different kinds of an occupation force, but both of them are inherently hostile to the civilians in the area where they're occupying. And both of them make the civilians' lives worse. Mm Mm-hmm. One bone I have to pick with Amuro this episode is how could he not have known that showing up in the core fighter in full uniform might maybe put people in danger? That feels like maybe he wasn't thinking this through. He didn't know there was a Xeon base so close. They seem to be in some kind of no man's land. The Federation isn't protecting it, but Xeon hasn't occupied it yet. Xeon forces are spread pretty thin out here. He didn't know that they were so close that they would detect him. It's a little dumb, but... What you don't know is something to be cautious about. Sure, but this is his first opportunity to see his mom in like 10 years. And as we've noticed in all of the episodes preceding this one, motherhood is a big hang up for Amuro. And basically everything goes wrong for him. Yeah, man, that was not a reunion that warmed any hearts. First he gets to the house and it's full of soldiers who say it was abandoned and have no idea where his mother went. He finds out she's not dead, much to his relief, shows up and is immediately told, oh, hey, uh, whatever your business, go hide your, go hide your ship. Go hide your ship now before we all get bombed to oblivion. Thank you. (laughs) And then when he finally does see his mother, it's been so long and they're both so overwhelmed by seeing each other. There are seconds of them just staring staring at each other. I thought the video froze. Before they finally come together and hug. And again, the voice of reason has to come up to them and be like, this is all very sweet, but can you hide your ship, please? (laughs) And we see some young orphans exclaim over how lucky Amuro is. I thought that was striking the young orphans who have had their homes destroyed by this war and yet are still fascinated by how cool all of the military tech is. One of them is wearing a Federation soldier's helmet and he's got a pistol stuffed down his pants, which again, who gave those children a gun? Who could stop them? And then things go wrong. If the white base had been able to trust its camouflage, they might not have needed to send Ryu out to shoot those Lagun. If he had totally managed to destroy both, 
if Amuro had left his transceiver somewhere else. Well, or if they just hadn't pinged him at that exact moment. And of course, Amuro says something like, how could they send me a message right now? But they had no way of knowing. No, of course not. And yeah, it really did, in that moment where he shoots the soldier through the blanket, feel as if he really didn't have another option. They were going to pull the blanket off him at any second. They were shoving his mother aside. And then and they then, would have killed him and they probably would have killed her. Or just captured him and taken him to be questioned. He would have been imprisoned. Not sure what the status of torture <laughs> is in this war, but who knows? Right. Amuro did the only thing he could. And then his mother tries to stop him when he goes after the one that he missed and is running away, who obviously in an ideal situation would be killed because then he can't take news of this back to the base right. and put the whole refugee camp in danger. Right. And then, and then... When Amuro is clearly distressed, right? He's pouring sweat. He's shaking. This is the first time that Amuro has shot a person. And back in episode two, Amuro made a big deal about how hard it was for him to even aim at a person. So now he's shot a person who is standing a few feet away from him. He's clearly an emotional wreck. And all his mother can do in this moment is chide him and say how wrong it was to do what he did. And when he says, don't you realize we're in the middle of a war? She says something like, that's no excuse to point guns at people. Well, and when he says, did you want me to die? And she's like, no, but I didn't want you to shoot anyone. Like, well, what alternative did he have? What what would, what would do you think he should have done then? She says things to him like, go back to how you were. What a disgraceful child. How he was, he was four or five. He's not a child anymore. He's 15 and has had to do a heck of a lot of growing up. He might not quite be an adult, but he's not a child. <laughs> and then, and then she has the gall to blame it on her husband. Maybe it's because he was raised by a man. Ugh. I was struck by the difference between how Amuro's mother talks to him in that moment versus how Bright talks to Amuro's mother at the end of the episode. Oh, absolutely. So many of her statements feel so unreasonable, and I'm sure they're meant to, but... In ways that make it seem like she really doesn't love Amuro. She doesn't know him, certainly. <laughs> and the idea of him that she has from when he was five... Or younger. ...is completely incompatible with the person he is now, and she can't handle it. And she doesn't love this person anymore. She says, I didn't bring you up this way. You didn't bring him up at all. You let his dad take him into space, and you couldn't go to space to be with your child. You couldn't bear the idea of living in space. So much that you stayed on Earth while your son grows up. For a decade or more. Well, and I put part of the blame on that on his father. Oh, yeah. That's, his father's terrible. That's a decision that theoretically a couple would make together and in advance and be like, well, we're both going or we're both not or we'll do it for a year or I don't know. Yet neither of them look good in no. that scenario. And I think they're not meant to. This episode gives us a great comparison to Amuro's space parents versus his bio parents. And what I mean by that, I'll discuss in a little bit. Because first I want to finish up on this bit about the ending of the episode. When Bright comes out, and we know from an earlier line of dialogue, Bright is disappointed in Amuro's decisions. He thinks Amuro... <laughs> really? <laughs> he thinks Amuro made the wrong decision to attack this forward base. And in a way, Amuro attacking the forward base in the Gundam is a lot like Amuro shooting the Zeon soldier. In that it's a target that maybe he didn't have to fight, maybe he shouldn't have, maybe he could have avoided it if he'd done things differently. But even though Bright thinks he did the wrong thing... Bright still supports Amuro. Bright still thinks Amuro is great. And in front of other people, in front of Amuro's mother, Bright has Amuro's back. Bright's like, Amuro is great. We couldn't be here without him. He saved us all many times. 
And she has the gall to be disbelieving. That can't be possible. The other really remarkable thing that Bright does at the end of the episode is he gives Amuro a choice. He doesn't try to guilt Amuro. He doesn't try to pressure him. After all of the verbal sparring and uh, physical (laughs) that they've had in previous episodes, he doesn't try to browbeat Amuro into coming with them. He says, we're leaving in a little while. You decide. There's no sense of guilt or pressure there. Though at that point, the decision has already been made. And when Amuro's mother asks him, is this what you really want? Amuro says, it's not about what I want. Back in episode six, when Amuro is totally exhausted and they need him to go out, they need him to fight because Garma is attacking with this huge force. And they ask Amuro, can you go out? And he says, it's not about what I can do. I have to. These are examples of Amuro taking responsibility, right? Of him becoming a man in the sense that we've talked about and that idea of taking responsibility for your decisions. And taking opportunities to protect other people when they exist. That Bushido masculinity ideal And a lot of adults will tell you that adulthood is not about what you want (laughs) much of the time. Nor is it really about what you can or can't do. When Amuro goes back to his childhood home, he finds one souvenir that he picks up and takes with him. And it's a little wooden Pinocchio doll. Eventually, he ends up putting it in his backpack and giving it to his mother, and he doesn't end up taking it with him back to the white base. He leaves it with her. And there is a scene of his mother, while he's out fighting, clutching this doll and weeping. So clearly, we're meant to be thinking about the Pinocchio story in parallel to what's happening in the episode. I confess, it is not a story that I'm super familiar with. I think that might be a good area (laughs) for some additional research. But what I strongly suspect is that, so in Pinocchio, Pinocchio goes on adventures, most of which have to do with him learning to be good and through his goodness, becoming a real boy. And I think this episode rejects that idea. I think that's why Amaro leaves Pinocchio behind, because being good would make him dead. <laughs> being good in the way that his mother thinks about goodness is something for children, not for adults. I agree completely. I think that's great. (laughs) I think there are some other notes on the Pinocchio bit. First is that in doll form, Pinocchio is a puppet and it behaves exactly the way its master wants it to. Amuro is not that puppet anymore as much as his mother might want him to be. And second, I think there's some parallelism between Pinocchio the doll and Gundam the mobile suit. Mm. Amuro has graduated from playing with dolls. It is time to put away childish things and take up manly mobile suits. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know about that so much, but I was with you before. (laughs) And a third point on Pinocchio is that this episode ends with Amuro getting a choice. He has gone from being a complete puppet at the mercy of circumstances, doing what other people tell him. He's now been given a choice and he's chosen the white base. And he knows he can't go back. He knows he can't be a child again. Yeah. And I think that's why he makes that choice as much as... It might appeal to him. He knows he cannot go back and he has accepted this responsibility. That parting scene does have an air of finality to it. Like he's never going to see his mother again. (laughs) 
there's a certain parallel between their first goodbye and their second. In the first goodbye, it really does feel like she is making this decision, or at least his parents have made this decision, and he simply has to deal with the consequences of that. In the last episode, Amuro has more of the agency, but I still couldn't help but feel like part of it was about his mother's rejection, like her inability to cope with the fact that he's changed and the fact that she felt the need to blame him for that. When theoretically she's the adult here, she should be the one who understands, oh, of course he changed. Of course things are different. <laughs> but that her inability to understand him is part of why he makes this choice. Yeah, in the first parting, she abandons him. And in the second one, she rejects him. And when he leaves in that second parting and in the first one, he is accompanied by his dad. Bright Akun! Bright the sun! Space dad, in this case. A much better dad for Amro than his bio dad was. And that, of course, was demonstrated a couple of episodes ago when Bright gave him the discipline that the show clearly thinks he needs. <laughs> yes. And the support. And so between Temre and Bright, we have these two competing ideas of fatherhood. As much as Bright is like four years older than Amro, he is in the role of the father throughout this part of the show. And that's, I think, really important helping him to become this adult person, this real boy that he needs to be. Real man. He doesn't need to be a real boy. Hence the rejection of Pinocchio. I was just so moved when Bright comes out there and we know he's just been complaining about Amuro. We know he's irritated, but he sees Amuro with his mother and he's not going to embarrass Amuro. He doesn't want to hurt Amuro as much as they have argued and locked horns. Amro is his comrade. Amro is one of his soldiers, and he's going to look after him, and he's going to talk him up to his family, because that's what you do. And in that scene, Amro is also leaving his bio mom in the company of his space mom, Frabo. <laughs> I know, I know, but forget about that for a second. Forget about any potential romance between Amro and Frau, and just think of her in maternal terms. Oh, absolutely. There's, I think, an undeniably intentional paralleling of Fraubo and Amro's mother. They even look a little similar. They look similar. They wear the same color. They wear the same shoes and socks. Do they? I think so. I didn't notice, I remember, but that makes sense. I remember thinking his mother looked very sort of childish because she's wearing knee socks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she's devoting herself to helping out a bunch of refugees, including some orphans, which is just Fraubo all over. When they leave, the last character interaction in the episode episode is Frau looking back at Amro's mother. She's the only one who looks back. But Fraubo is tough as nails. Space mom is better than Earth mom. Fraubo is like, I'll get in the Gundam. <laughs> Give me the keys, Amro. Good point. That's a scene where Fraubo tells Amro she's disappointed in him. She's ashamed of him, just like Amro's mother in this episode. But in that one, Fraubo is disappointed in Amro because he is letting everyone down and he's letting himself down and he's not doing his duty. As opposed to his mother being mad that he didn't stay a child forever. Right. Amuro's space parents want him to be an adult. We don't know much about Amuro's dad. <laughs> yeah, who knows what Temre wants. But Amuro's mom wanted him to be a child forever. And then we get a very long shot of the white base slowly leaving into the sunset while Amuro's mother weeps. Having already 
fallen, kneeling to the ground. I thought this was one of the most emotionally powerful of the episodes we've seen so far. Maybe the most. Even definitely more so than Iselina's episode. I think because the execution was stronger throughout. I also think it's just more relatable. <laughs> it's harder to imagine being in a scenario a viewer may or may not have had a great love in their life of that kind, a great passion. And it's hard to conceive of that person having been killed and of you then going out of your way to get vengeance. Like that is a little harder for a current audience anyway to wrap their head around mm -hmm. versus conflict with your parents. Your parents don't understand you that anybody yeah. can relate to that feeling. It's a universal theme. And it's been set up for us. This is something that the show has been building towards. We've had little interactions. We've had this theme of motherhood interrupted going on for long episodes now. Two more points. One is funny and one is tragic. Tragic first. Yes, please. <laughs> At this point in the show, there is a feeling of the crushing weight of tragedy having become routine. Because when Amaro comes home, the woman selling apples that he runs into is the mother of a former childhood friend that he used to play with when he was four or five. And after they've reunited, they're sitting on a stoop and talking. And Amaro says, oh, so Komali, the name of his friend, is dead. And the woman says, yes, and my husband to. It's very sad. This is just a discussion in passing. It sort of washes over them like waves on a beach and they move on. There's nothing that can be done. Now for the fun one. Hot dog patrol. <laughs> Why? Why are they? One of the Laguns, when it radios base, mentions that they are hot dog patrol. The Laguns have gotten great names. An earlier one, the one that dropped off the supply crate for the widow and her child, was called, I think, Big John. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I gotta say, I finished the episode worried about that refugee camp, because even the one Amaro shot survived the gunshot. I would guess that that refugee camp is going to be okay, because I think after Amaro destroyed that whole forward base, any intelligence report that there was a Federation soldier at the refugee camp is going to get lost in the shuffle. Fingers crossed. The only memento Amuro retrieves from his childhood home is a small Pinocchio doll. He carries it with him throughout the episode, ultimately leaving it with his mother when he chooses to rejoin the white base. The question that we, the audience, face is, what does the doll represent? The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi was originally a serialized story, beginning in 1881, and was later turned into a novel. Some sources say that it is the most translated non-religious book in the world. Wow. Essentially, a piece of animate wood is carved into a mischievous puppet who gets into scrapes, goes on adventures, and learns to be good, ultimately becoming a real boy. It's a little like Pygmalion, but without all the sex stuff. Uh, and some other layers, which we'll get into. In the serial, Pinocchio dies a gruesome death by hanging. At the editor's request, the final chapters in which Pinocchio becomes a real boy were added later. I There are like some strong parallels to Gundam here that you aren't aware of yet. <laughs> I'm surprised it's so recent. I would have thought it was like at least 200 years older. We'll get into that. There's some okay. interesting, yeah. So... Pinocchio, the character, is described as a rascal, a disgrace, an imp, and a confirmed rogue. His first act is to laugh in his creator's face and steal the old man's wig. 
When the talking cricket tries to warn him of the perils of disobedience and hedonism, Pinocchio throws a hammer at him and kills him. I don't remember that. (laughs) After Geppetto sells his coat to buy Pinocchio school books, Pinocchio sells those books to buy a ticket to a puppet show. He steals grapes from a farm. When he is only days away from becoming a real boy through hard work and good grades in school, Yes, that is one of the first hurdles he's set for becoming a real boy. Uh, But days away from achieving his goal, he instead runs away to Toyland, where everyone plays all the time and never works. And he always gets a comeuppance. The easy way never works out. At various points, he is thrown in jail, almost burnt alive, almost fried alive, turned into a donkey, and partially eaten, among other horrors. (laughs) The author was clearly a man who thought that children, particularly little boys, were not inherently good. They were inherently evil and had to be taught to be good. (laughs) The story is also a parable of its time. A foolish or naive country peasant swindled and tricked when they come to the city for work. This was a time that was seeing a lot of industrialization and new factories, and a lot of the labor force was moving out of the country and into the city. Pinocchio is frequently tricked by other characters who take advantage of his greed or his laziness. He finally becomes a real boy, after a whole bunch of adventures that I won't explain, when, after months of hard work so that he can support Geppetto, who is ill, he uses his savings, which were intended to buy him a new coat, to instead pay for medicine for the Blue Fairy. That night, she turns him real and leaves him new clothes and a purse full of gold. The lesson? (laughs) There is no easy life or easy money. Be obedient and dutiful to your parents, be hardworking and self-sacrificing, and things will work out for you. The lesson feels a little bit undercut by the fact that he just got a pouch of gold at the end. Well, he got a pouch of gold, but he received that pouch full of gold as a reward for his self-sacrifice. He didn't give up his time and hard work and money thinking about personal rewards. He did it to care for his surrogate parents, Geppetto and the Blue Fairy. And it's that he was being unselfish and dutiful and responsible. And because of that, he gets these rewards. There have been innumerable adaptations of Pinocchio, the Walt Disney film in 1940, and Osama Tezuka manga in 1952. Pinocchio also having had a large influence on Tezuka's Astro Boy. Which, of course, Tomino worked on. From most of his early career. And two anime series, Kashi no Kimoku in 1972 and Picorino no Balken in 1976. The Disney Pinocchio made Pinocchio a good kid to start with, led astray more through foolishness, naivete, and being easily influenced. Just let your conscience be your guide. It takes more of a position that there is inherent goodness in children. They just have to learn how to listen to it and not be led astray. And I think the talking cricket does not get hammer smashed. No, that does not happen. Tezuka finds a sort of middle ground, retaining some of the darker elements of the original, and the two anime series take the same tack. When Amuro picks up the doll, I think he's longing for the simplicity of childhood. Just do what your parents tell you and work hard and everything will be fine. But he knows better now. He can't look to his mother for guidance. She doesn't actually want him to grow up, to become real, as it were. She wants a good boy, not to raise a good man. And throughout the series, looking to adults for guidance has not often worked out. Not ever. There have been some good grown-ups. Captain Paolo. Yes, Captain Paolo. Arguably bright. If bright's a grown-up. I don't think this is meant to advocate for Pinocchio's more lazy or hedonistic moments, but it is meant to refute this idea that obedience and sacrificing yourself to care for your parents will somehow magically yield rewards. 
We know that Tomino thinks children need some discipline when they're growing up in order to become good people, that there's no inherent goodness to being a child. But we also know that he doesn't think being an adult is all it's cracked up to be. I think he does believe there's some inherent goodness in children. He just also thinks, you know, people make mistakes and that he sees physical discipline as necessary in the correction of those mistakes. But I think his comments about the fact that children are the only ones who can really think long term about what society can and should be give us a picture of someone who believes in a degree of moral superiority for young people and a degree of moral decay as you age. We've also seen the show do a lot to question authority. <laughs> and so the idea that the correct way to live and the correct way to be a real person is obedience to whoever it is who is above you, whether it's a parental figure or some other person, that system wouldn't make sense in this show. <laughs> Right. And so the show has also put a great deal of emphasis on doing your duty. But your duty is not what authorities tell you to do. Your duty has a kind of abstract quality, a rightness independent of what people who happen to be in authority say you should or shouldn't do. And a big part of Amaro's feelings and the tough time Amaro is having probably come from this conflict. He would love to feel as if he could just trust what people told him to do, but he doesn't. He can't just do whatever people tell him. He needs himself to understand why and to, to feel as if there's a reason. He gets into that argument with Bright. Why are we doing this? It's not enough for Amaro to just be told, because you have to, because I told you and I'm your superior. And we know that Bright isn't just following orders. Bright has his own reasons for what he's doing, but he can't articulate them to Amaro, or he can't articulate them in a way that Amaro will accept. Back in episode, uh, last episode, last episode, during Giran's speech, on the bridge we get a sense of Bright's commitment, what Bright finds important, why Bright is fighting. And Amaro, for a moment, sees a little bit of that too. We have to fight because what Zeon wants is evil. So yeah, I think the reason they create this Pinocchio motif in the episode, the reason they have Amuro pick it up and then leave it behind is looking for his mother, reconnecting with her, coming back. It's all about wanting to recapture the peace and the safety and the simplicity of childhood. But he realizes he can't have that anymore, that he's not a child anymore, that the world is more complicated than that, that those childhood definitions of what it meant to be good are not going to serve him anymore. And at the end, with that in mind, he kind of articulates that when he says, it's not about what I want. Maybe I wanted to stay here and live with you and be a child again, but it's not about what I want. Quartering, as a military term, is when the military takes over a building, like a business or a home, to house soldiers or to use as operational offices. The rarely discussed Third Amendment of the U.S. Constitution expressly prohibits the military from quartering in peacetime without the consent of the homeowner, and in wartime, only as prescribed by law. This basically came down to a conflict between a distrust of standing armies and a fear of keeping all of the soldiers barracked away from the general population population where they could plot things <laughs> versus resistance to what felt to the colonial population like a new kind of taxation. Oh, you have to pay for the army's housing and their food and an infringement on their property rights. 
While a common enough practice in the 1700s, we may not think about it as much for more recent wars. However, during World War II, German forces frequently quartered in occupied areas or billeted troops in private homes. Billeting takes over part of a house or a series of rooms, but not the whole house. So it doesn't typically displace the residents. I actually had no idea that was what billeting was. Good to know. The most striking American case is from after Japan attacked the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska's southwest coast. The U.S. forcibly evacuated the islands of their native population and quartered soldiers in the vacation homes. Homes were vandalized and looted. No law had been passed, as would seem to be required by the Third Amendment, to permit the quartering. It took decades for the Aleuts to receive an apology and some pretty paltry compensation from the United States government. It's not audible, but I'm making a face of disgust. Basically, fast-moving armies don't have time to build barracks, and it's not at all uncommon, particularly in areas that are actively occupied by the military, for a military force to take over private buildings for their own use. Because they're central characters, we've talked a lot about Amro and Sela and Frau and Bright. And because of our predilections, we've talked a lot about Kai. <laughs> we've kind of neglected Hayato. Part of that is because Hayato hasn't done all that much. Most of that is because Hayato hasn't said all of that much. But we have done him a disservice. And in this episode, we get to see Hayato practicing Judo. And I thought we'd take a little bit of time to talk about Judo. And what it might mean that Hayato is a judoka, or a person who does judo. And we know this is important because earlier, in the very first episode, they show him carrying his judo gi over his shoulder. Like, they make a point of drawing him carrying his judo gi as Side 7 is being evacuated. Yeah, in fact, for quite a while, all we knew about Hayato was that he did judo and was Amuro's neighbor. In episode three, he gets his first significant line, and it is to relay some judo wisdom. I don't remember that. What was that? When they're talking about whether or not to attack Shar while he's getting his supplies, Hayato says, if you attack someone when they're off balance, you can defeat even a larger and stronger opponent. <laughs> or at least that's what my judo sensei told me. So what exactly is judo? By this point in the podcast, none of our dedicated listeners are going to be surprised to hear me say that it's actually more complicated than you might think, and it's deeply tied into Japanese history. Today, judo is an Olympic sport practiced around the world. It is a form of what is sometimes called jacket wrestling, or wrestling based on seizing and manipulating an opponent via the heavy jacket they wear. In judo, the jacket is part of the judo gi, a word which just means judo clothes. In modern judo, the goal is to grab hold of your opponent's gi and then throw them to the ground, while remaining on your feet or landing on top of your opponent in a dominant position. Judo also includes some techniques for grappling on the ground, as well as strangulation techniques, both with and without the gi, and joint locking. The emphasis is definitely on the throws, though. Judo once included striking techniques as well, but those have been almost entirely removed. The name means gentle way, but as my judo instructor used to say, it's only gentle for the person on top. <laughs> he also used to say, get up, get up, why can't you get up? I'm old and you're young and strong, why can't you get up? And that doesn't hurt, does it? <laughs> oh, your sensei sounds great. The two most internationally prominent jacket wrestling styles after judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and sambo, are both derived from judo and use very similar uniforms. But jacket wrestling styles developed all over the world, and there are notable surviving traditions in Ireland, Cornwall, Brittany, Mongolia, Turkey, Siberia, China, and probably a dozen other places. I love me some folk wrestling, so if you know of any others, send them my way. 
I'm remembering the not jacket one. I think it was like some Turkish variant of the dudes are like completely oiled oh, and only wearing very tight pants. Turkish oil wrestling. <laughs> tight leather pants. Yes. Most of the throws are performed by reaching into your opponent's tight leather pants and grabbing hold of something. <laughs> <laughs> Judo as such dates to 1882 when a small, sickly, 22-year-old trust fund kid who had just graduated college and had been doing martial arts for about three years declared that he had created his own new martial art, and it was better than all of the centuries-old samurai fighting styles that already existed. <laughs> All right, I'm saying that in a way to make it sound funnier and leaving out a couple of important details, but that's all basically true. And now some history. We don't know much about the truly ancient history of martial arts in Japan, but the earliest organized unarmed martial art was probably sumai, a precursor to modern sumo wrestling that incorporated striking, kicking, and headbutting. This was more self-defense than sport, and while matches were held for ritual purposes, it was not uncommon for one participant to be seriously injured or killed. Early Japanese chronicles, like the Nihon Shoki, trace sumai to at least as early as the year 2 BCE, but those chronicles weren't written until centuries later. We can say, however, that starting sometime before the 10th century CE, long before the Warring States period most of us think about when we imagine samurai warriors, Japan's hereditary warrior houses, called buke, started to become increasingly organized and powerful as the civilian bureaucratic government weakened. Each buke developed its own set of techniques for teaching the skills required of a warrior in that era. Skills like archery, swordsmanship, but also more esoteric skills like staff fighting, sickle and chain fighting, sword drawing, and later musketry. So each clan would have its own martial arts, called buge. And naturally, when your buke were the only people you could really trust, these martial arts were fiercely guarded secrets. Each clan also had its own form of unarmed fighting, which they called jujutsu. Jujutsu in this context was both a weapon of last resort, if the warrior found himself unarmed, and a complement to their weapon skills. But the clan-based rivalries expanded into regional conflicts on a vastly bigger scale. Bandits and brigands proliferated throughout the country. Powerful temples trained huge numbers of warrior monks. Warlords levied masses of peasants for combat. The nature of warfare changed, and the armies got much, much bigger. Too big, by far, to be filled entirely with hereditary warrior aristocrats. It became necessary to train more people in less time. And so, systematized schools of martial arts emerged and then multiplied. Disinherited warriors could establish their own schools and travel the country as martial arts instructors, or set themselves up as military advisors to other clans. These early martial arts styles are now called the Koryu, or the old styles, and they include Koryu Jujitsu styles as well. The Koryu continued to flourish into the Edo period, when the new Tokugawa shogunate brought centuries of near-constant warfare to an end, and left an entire cast of warriors with a lifetime of highly refined battlefield skills and nothing to do with them. The Koryu took this in stride, though. In the ensuing two and a half centuries, the martial arts evolved to focus more on personal improvement and spiritual cultivation. The swordsmanship that had conquered the country became a swordsmanship which could rule the country. The real challenge came with Japan's rapid modernization in the 1870s and 1880s, when the newly empowered Meiji government pursued westernization at a breakneck pace. Every cultural practice that harked back to Japan's medieval past was seen as intolerably backward, and the Koryu martial arts fell into extreme disfavor. Enter Kano Jigoro, who is about to become that 22-year-old trust fund kid I mentioned before. 
But right now, it's 1875. Kano, descendant of a prominent sake brewing clan, is 15 years old, 5 foot 2, and weighs 92 pounds. <laughs> he has been studying at the English language boarding school Ikue Gijuku for a year. The bullying at the school is intense, and Kano is desperate to learn how to fight. His father's friend, a former guard for the last shogun, shows him some jujitsu techniques, but refuses to teach him. Jujitsu is outdated, barbaric, and dangerous. His father discourages him from seeking instruction, but Kano ignores him. Not that that does much good. No one will teach him. All the jujitsu teachers had given up the art. Four years pass, and it's 1879. Kano leaves the boarding school for Tokyo Imperial University, but he has not given up his search for a jujitsu instructor. Finally, he finds one, Fukuda Hachinosuke, teaching the Divine True Willow School of Jiu-Jitsu to five students in a tiny dojo. Divine True Willow? Love the names. Yeah, I could give you the Japanese, but the English is so much more fun, so we're just going to stick with Divine <laughs> True Willow. A year later, in 1880, Fukuda dies. But by then, Kano has become his most accomplished student and his heir. He finds another Divine True Willow School instructor, Iso Masatomo. But Iso also dies after just one year training Kano. So Kano found someone who looked a little healthier and started <laughs> learning from Ikubo Tsunetoshi, a master of the school of the rise and the fall, a jiu-jitsu style that focused on striking, throwing, joint locking, and choking an opponent wearing full armor. Clearly, Kano's experience with his first two masters had taught him that he could learn everything he needed to know from someone in a year. <laughs> and in 1882, at 22 years old, he opened his own dojo. He remained on friendly terms with Ikubo, who came to teach classes at Kano's dojo three days a week. Kano combined the two jujitsu schools that he had learned thus far to create his own synthesis martial art, calling it judo to reflect his own emphasis on personal development rather than pure skill at fighting. The jutsu ending in jujitsu suggests a means of accomplishing a task, while the do ending of judo has more spiritual connotations, suggesting a way or a path, and has connections to the philosophical concept of the Tao. But because Kano was a small, well-educated philosopher from a rich family, the more rough-and-tumble jujitsu schools in Tokyo, who were themselves at this point experiencing a resurgence in popularity thanks to the rise of Japanese military nationalism, took an instant dislike to his upstart little dojo. Challenges in the form of jujitsu fighters showing up at Kano's dojo and demanding a match against him or one of his students started immediately. With reputation and honor on the line, these were brutal matches with few rules. And the fact that Kano's judo students consistently bested larger and more experienced opponents in these matches only fueled their hatred. This all came to a peak when Viscount Mishima Michitsune, head of the Tokyo Metropolitan Police, invented Kano to send students to compete in the Keishicho Ujutsu Taikai, the Metropolitan Police Department Martial Arts Tournament. Weirdly, while we know about this, and we know it was essential to judo's explosion in popularity, nobody at the time bothered recording the details. <laughs> We actually don't even know how many such tournaments took place. But in the aftermath of however many fights did or didn't happen at places and times, <laughs> the Metropolitan Police asked Kano to send instructors to teach judo to the police. Judo quickly gained popularity as the other styles of jiu-jitsu declined. And the rest, as they say, is poorly recorded history. Besides being really good at martial arts, Kano was also a hugely important figure in reforming Japanese education at the end of the 19th century. Besides normal educator stuff, he traveled internationally, spreading judo wherever he went, and introduced judo as part of Japan's primary school curriculum. Healthy minds, healthy bodies, that sort of thing. He was picked to serve as Japan's first representative on the International Olympic Committee, though when he was appointed, basically no one in Japan knew what the Olympics were. <laughs> 
Would that have been for the Tokyo Olympics? No, this was in 1908 in an anticipation of the 1912 Olympics. Okay. The Olympic Committee sent Japan a note asking them if they were going to send an Olympic team. And the Japanese government didn't know what the Olympics were. <laughs> they didn't want to say no because they felt that would be embarrassing on the world stage. So they kicked it to the Ministry of Education, who kicked it to Kano, who asked, I believe, the Finnish ambassador what the, the Olympics. Olympics were. <laughs> And the ambassador gave him a pamphlet. And after reading it, Kano said, yeah, I think I understand this. I'll do it. <laughs> he continued to represent Japan at the Olympics until his death in 1938. Okay, so he died well before the Tokyo Olympics. He would not have been able to be a part of that. Correct. He actually died while on a ship traveling to the Olympics. The official cause of death was pneumonia, and his health had been bad for a little while. But there were persistent rumors, both at the time and today, that he was actually poisoned because of his opposition to Japanese militarism. Wow. Yes. There were a number of suspicious deaths among opponents of Japanese militarism around that time, none of which have been proven to have been assassinations. Well, and he was someone very prominent, someone with a very high social position and a lot of visibility. It would have been uncomfortable for the government that he was being vocal right. in his opposition. Because he was unquestionably a Japanese patriot. He really believed in Japan. He loved Japan. And so you couldn't smear him as being insufficiently loyal to the country. Of course, Judo outlived Kano, and thanks in large part to his internationalism and his emphasis on moral development over mere physical skill, Judo became hugely popular throughout the world. In 1964, when Tokyo got the Olympic Games, Judo was added to the schedule. It reappeared in 72 and has been included in every Summer Games since then. Knowing that Hayato practices Judo might give us some coded hints about his character. Of the major Japanese martial arts, judo is not generally perceived as being as refined and high-class a pursuit as kendo fencing or kudo archery, but neither is it regarded as a low-class, brutal sport that only appeals to thugs, gangsters, and idiots like karate, MMA, or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Hayato, we might then suppose, comes from a middle-class sort of background and is perhaps a sensitive soul and a deep thinker, concerned with his own moral improvement. And judo is all about manipulating momentum, going with the flow until you can find or create your moment for action. So when Hayato seems to just be going along with things on the white base, Next time on episode 1.14, Tick Tick Boom. Eek! Bugs! 12 unsuspicious guys in a van. A marmot for your experiments! Betsuni nanimonai. Can't you see this is tearing Haro apart? Notice me, Matilda Senpai. It's a trap! That poor shield. Magnets, how do they work? A fastball special and unexpected pan flutes. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. 
or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, war is no excuse for pointing guns at people on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. that again and make sure it's absolutely definitely even not <laughs> in the podcast. It's sort of the classic one, right? Oh, yeah. It's the judo throw. Especially if you're a small guy throwing a big guy. This is episode 13, Coming Home, or in the Japanese, We Meet Again, Mother. That's not what it says, is it? Saikai Hahayo. Oh, uncomfortable. <laughs> Here we go. This you want mothers. Mothers! Mother! Mother. We meet again. Mother. I have the Pinocchio song stuck in my head. (laughs) I've got no strings to hold me down, to make me laugh, to make me proud. This is Judo. Okay, so you have a lot to say about Judo. Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't kidding when I was like, write a book about Judo. It's like... 10 seconds of the episode. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to get a lot of other opportunities to talk about judo. Okay. Dot, dot, dot. He's waiting for his moment. Judo throw. <laughs> throw a dude three times your size. And I did go back and watch, and it is Ippon Seonage. That's the name of the throw. Yes. It means one-armed shoulder throw, because you have hold of one of your opponent's arms, and then you throw them over your shoulder. 